it's no stretch of the imagination to say 2020 has been a year like no other. Not only are we living through the collective trauma of a pandemic and trying to navigate that and our normal life and our life together in the church, but we also just went through a very polarizing election cycle. And probably many of us feel very beaten up with the way our nation is right now. And as I've interacted with people, uh, really over the last half year since this pandemic started, the one word that seems to keep coming up over and over again to describe everything is this word exhausting. I know that you may feel this more acutely at different times, but I see heads nodding. Yes, this is a, a great word to describe how we are doing. And I don't know if actually how we're doing. That's just what we're doing. We're being exhausted all the time. And so I want us to ask the question, how should we live? And by that, I mean, how do we live in exhausting times? Not only individually, but together as the church. And to answer that question, what I want to do is to look at the New Testament letter of First Peter, written by one of Jesus' closest friends. He is writing to a group of Christians who are living through exhausting times. Uh, they, because of intense persecution, are living through what was known as the diaspora, the dispersion. They were refugees. They were homeless. They were trying to survive. And they lived in exhausting times. Uh, they probably would trade places with us right now if they could. And so what I want us to do is to look at what Peter wrote to them to get an answer to how we should live in our own exhausting times. And he's basically going to tell them Two things. Remember who you are and whose you are. And remember what he has called you to do, even during exhausting times. And so I'm going to call our study today, A Nation Set Apart. And with that title, it's not what you think. We're going to be looking at really um, some words that are a political context and politically charged, even for a first century context. And I want us to apply it to our own context today as we figure out how to navigate some of these exhausting waters that we're in. And so let me just say this. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, and maybe you're here today wrestling with some of the implications of that or watching us online, you're going to kind of listen in on what it would be like to be a Christian during these times and to hear some, some marching orders, so to speak, from the, from the Apostle Peter as he tells Christians how they ought to be living during exhausting and troubling times. And so you'll get an idea of the identity that Jesus gives to his people. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are going to be reminded, perhaps afresh and hopefully maybe at a deeper level than ever before, whose you are and who God says that you are and what our calling is in living in troubled times. And so let me just say, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about politics. And I imagine there's probably going to be one of several different responses. Probably some of you might be thinking, finally, someone is saying some things that need to be said. And others might be thinking, wow, I, I really needed to be discipled in thinking about politics from a Christian worldview. Others of you might want to get up and leave. <laughs> And the least desirable outcome would be if everyone wanted to get together and fire me after this. And so just a heads up on kind of where we're going. We're going to, to, to move into some of these waters, which I know are a bit controversial. But I have confidence that we can bear it because you are some of the, the brightest people I know here. And we collectively want to know what it means to follow Jesus during exhausting and troubling times like ours. So with that as an introduction, let me just pray for us quickly as we get ready to look at First Peter. Lord, you know 
our hearts. You know um, how fatigued we are at living through these times, trying to navigate life in the time of a pandemic, and having just gone through a very polarizing season in our nation. Everywhere we look, there seems to be friction and disagreement, and loyalties are drawn in all different kinds of directions. But I pray that you would disciple us this day in the way of Jesus, that you would form our hearts and our affections and our minds and bring them into alignment with the way of Jesus. Help us to be willing to to consider what's being said and to, to respond appropriately with faith and allegiance in Jesus. And so we pray in his name. Amen. We're actually going to dial in on First Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But to get there, I'm going to read a broader context. And so what I want to do with you this morning is to invite you to put yourselves in the sandals of first century followers of Jesus who are literally fleeing for their lives simply because they say that Jesus is the Messiah, the world's true king and savior. And so you get this letter from the apostle Peter and you're hanging on every word with bated breath. So let's, let's lean in to see what Peter says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Two, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's drop down to chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, that is to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession 
that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the nations honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Now, there is a lot packed into what Peter is saying there, and there's no way we can unpack it all. As I mentioned before, I want to, to dial in on a particular verse, but before we do that, I need to lay a little bit of a foundation so we understand the implications of why Peter calls them a chosen nation. So let's ask two questions. One is, who are these people? And individually, the answer is, they are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a couple of things I want to highlight here. They testified that Jesus is the true Lord and Savior of the world. Later in this letter to these persecuted believers of Jesus, Peter is going to remind them to set apart Christ as Lord in their hearts. Now, for many of us, that just sounds like something, yeah, that we should do. The Lord Jesus Christ, we understand that. But what we fail to, to comprehend many times is just how revolutionary such a statement is. And how if you said those words in the wrong context, you might just end up crucified on a cross. You see, at the time of Jesus' birth, there was a ruler, a Roman emperor, the first Roman emperor, as he is known by the name Caesar Augustus. He was the son of Julius Caesar, an adopted son, I should say, Julius Caesar. And upon Julius's death, the Roman Senate proclaimed his divinity. They said that Julius is now a god. So, of course, his son, Caesar Augustus, is known as the son of God. He was called the king of kings and lord of lords. And everywhere through the Roman Empire was proclaimed to be the savior of the world. That's the context that Jesus was born into, and the context in which the disciples of Jesus found themselves living in the midst of intense persecution. And so there was, when Jesus was being arrested and on trial, even the Jewish leaders at the time <laughs> proclaimed their allegiance to Caesar. Pilate said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. Now, the early Christians testified to Jesus, testified of Jesus, that he is actually the world's true king and, and Lord. The apostle Peter said this. I'm sorry. The apostle Paul said this in his introduction to the book of Romans. Christ Jesus was declared to be the son of God in power. By his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King. In fact, in the book of Acts, we're told and through the preaching of, of Paul and Silas, there's this huge riot that took place in the city of Thessalonica. And the accusation was, in the midst of this riot, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also saying that there is another King, Jesus. What prompted the riot was these followers of Jesus is saying there is another king and his name is Jesus. 
The Apostle John would say in his letter, We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Caesar is not the Savior of the world. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And of course, the Apostle John in the book of Revelation picked up on the name that was being spoken of Jesus. He said he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so this small group of disciples that are now scattered throughout the Roman Empire because of persecution, just trying to survive, just trying to make it another day, have this confession on their lips. Jesus is the true king and savior of the world. We might say he is the emperor of all emperors. He is the president of all presidents. And he's never up for re-election. He is the master of the universe. When they set apart their, their Lord as Lord in their hearts, this is what they were saying. So if you were to ask the early followers of Jesus, what is your politics? They would say, Jesus is Lord. Now, of course, they didn't live in a republic like we do. They didn't have the ability to vote. They couldn't organize and have political action committees. They couldn't lobby the Caesar to get favors. They're just trying to survive. But they testify that Jesus is the true Lord and Savior of the world. But they also obeyed this Jesus as the world's true Lord and Savior. In the introduction to this letter that we just read, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, is writing to God's elect exiles who have been chosen, he says, to be obedient to Jesus Christ. What comfort that must have brought them when the pressures are to cave and say that Caesar is Lord, to know that they have been chosen and set apart by God himself to give obedience and allegiance to Jesus. In fact, the Apostle Paul, in his magisterial work on the book of Romans, talks about how they had been given grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations for the sake of his name. In other words, the apostles were given the charge to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and call people to obedience to the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul himself would later say, we make it our ambition to please him above pleasing anyone else. They pleased Jesus. That was their ambition. And then lastly, on this, this first question here, they rejoiced in Jesus as the true Lord and Savior of the world. We skipped over it pretty fast, but you may have noticed this. He, he says to these persecuted believers, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. In other words, something had happened to them and, and receiving this gift of salvation from Jesus that caused them in the midst of intense persecution because of Jesus to rejoice with joy, and not just simply joy, but joy that is inexpressible. And not simply inexpressible joy, but joy that is full of glory. Something supernatural is going on, something edifying, upholding, upbuilding, fortified their constitution, and they rejoiced in it. And so that's a little bit about who they are individually, but let's ask the question, who are these folks collectively, together as the church? As they're scattered throughout the Roman Empire, still gathering together to learn about Jesus, who are they? And here Peter tells them three things primarily. He says, you are a chosen race. 
Now, if, to think about this for just a second, to say any race is chosen <laughs> in our day sounds like the height of arrogance. I mean, we know what happened with Nazi Germany and this belief that a race is superior to any other. Peter's not saying that they're superior. He's simply saying they are a chosen race. And why are they chosen? What, what is this race composed of people from all different nations chosen by? What chosen for? They, they are chosen to be a new kind of human race, to apprentice with Jesus in a new way of being human. And so all the old markers of, of loyalty and division are now dropped. Listen to what Paul says in the book of Galatians. He said, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's not saying that these distinctions disappeared, but they no longer divide people in the church. We come together, slave or free, young or old, men and women, rich or poor. We all come together because of Jesus. And he says, you are one with Jesus. This is the chosen race. He tells them also they're a royal priesthood. And we could spend actually a whole message on each one of these. And I feel so bad just breezing over them lightly because I actually want to get to where we're going. But nevertheless, in telling them they're a royal priesthood, he's telling them that they are representing God to this world. That they are his spokesmen. As crazy as that might sound, they're the ones who've been chosen to, to intercede for this world. And so the last thing here, and this is where we're actually going to focus in on. And this is where it's going to get a little bit dicey for us. They are called a holy nation. So just pop quiz here real fast. If you were to be asked the question, who is God's chosen nation? What would you say? Now, depending on the context of where that question is asked, there are probably a number of different answers. No doubt, many Christians would say Israel is the chosen nation of God. In the Old Testament, they were set apart as the chosen nation of God. Some people might say America is the chosen nation of God. But what did Peter say? Writing to these followers of Jesus, fleeing for their lives, he tells them, you are a holy nation. In fact, each one of these descriptions here are descriptions that were used of Israel, used by God to describe Israel after he had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and was bringing them into the promised land. And on the way, they're stopping at Mount Sinai where God's going to enter into this covenant with them. And this is what God says through Moses. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you shall speak to Israel. And now here's Peter the ambassador of Jesus Christ, a Jew, speaking to these persecuted believers, taking these descriptions of Old Testament Israel and now placing them on the people of Jesus. And he says, you are a holy nation. Now, I imagine probably if they got that letter and heard that read, they'd probably be asking this question. Um, Peter, how can we be a nation when we are refugees? We have no land we have no wealth. We have no political clout. We are homeless just trying to survive. How can you call us a holy nation? And I think Peter would remind them, as he does through the letter, that Jesus Christ is the Lord. Jesus himself 
upon his resurrection and commissioning of his church said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And therefore he commissions his disciples to go and make disciples, not simply of individuals, but of nations. Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And you are his people, a holy nation. And so here's the point that I want to to emphasize for us this morning. The church of Jesus Christ is a transnational, international nation set apart for the sake of the nations. The church of Jesus Christ is not a geopolitical body. It is a transnational, international nation set apart for the sake of the nations. And so, church, we desperately need to recover our identity of being a holy nation set apart for the sake of the nations and set apart for our nation. All right, I'm going I'm to try to apply this concept to our lives. This is where it's going to get a little bit dicey. I need you to listen carefully to what I'm saying because some of what I'm saying could be misunderstood. I've had this message on my heart for about two months to give, and I was tweaking it even up to uh, a half an hour before I left my house this morning. And so I'm going to try to say some things, and I can't say everything I need to at once. And you're going to have questions about what I'm going to say, and that's all right. Let's talk about it. But nevertheless, we've got to move forward and apply this. So here's my first point of application. Let's unhitch this notion of God and country. Okay, no one left running for the doors, so we're okay for the moment. I want us to, to think about what it means for us as the people of Jesus to be a holy nation. And in order for us to do that, we need to unhitch this notion of God and country. Now, I know many of us were raised to love God and to love our country. So when we think of God and country, we're talking about things that we love. And so hear me closely. It is not wrong to love God and love your country. But we need to separate these two to ensure that they are not entangled in our minds. I'm speaking to us as the church. And so I'm going to give several words of caution as I try to unpack what this might mean for us to unhitch this notion of God and country. Not so that we can hate our country, but so that we can actually love it better. The first word of caution is this. Beware of so intertwining Christianity in America that you cannot imagine one without the other. Be aware of so intertwining Christianity and America that you cannot imagine one without the other. Now, the way this often happens, at least from my perspective on political discourse, is Scripture spoken to a particular people in a particular place, is oftentimes taken out of its context and then applied to America as a nation. For example, let me ask you this question. Who said these words? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, a city on a hill. Jesus said that, right? And who did he say this to? He said this to his disciples, the people who would bear his message to the world. Now, in our own Uh, History as a country, this language has been used to apply 
first of all, to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, which was a group of people fleeing religious persecution who were setting up a self-consciously Christian society. And John Winthrop, in a message entitled Christian Charity or Christian Love, said, the world is watching us as we are positioned as a city on a hill. And they will know, they will know us by our love. And so that was good. But that was spoken and written before there was the United States of America. But that language has been continually used to describe the United States of America by politicians on both sides. We're told over and over again that America is the salt of the earth, that it is the light of the world. It is the last great hope for humankind. I'm going to use an illustration of a political candidate, and I'm, I'm an equal opportunity um, picker honor. <laughs> Last week, I used an example of a Democratic candidate. This week, I'm going to use uh, an example of our President Mike Pence. One time, he said, I'm a conservative, I'm sorry, I am a Christian, a conservative, and a Republican in that order. And let me just say, I think that that's probably a, a good way of, of prioritizing priorities. He wants to say, first of all, I'm allegiant to Jesus. Second of all, I have a political philosophy I embrace. And thirdly, I identify with a particular political party. And that's, I think, whether you agree with his party or his politics, that's, that's beside the point. But I think this is the way that a Christian should think about the world. We look at the world through the eyes of our Christianity first and foremost. But for Mike Pence to say this, um, I'm using him as an example because He's a, he's a professing Christian, and it was easy for him to get America and Christianity entangled. There was an article that came out right after the Republican National Convention that said Vice President Mike Pence swapped out Jesus for Old Glory in his Republican National Conference address. And Old Glory, of course, being a reference to our flag. And to understand what he said, let's just take the context from the scriptures that he is going to use in his speech. <clears throat> In the book of Hebrews, excuse me. In the book of Hebrews, the author has been talking about how Jesus is superior to anything and everything that we can sink our teeth into. And then he says this Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith. So here is an author writing this letter that we have in our New Testament, writing to believers who are tempted to reject Jesus because it's just getting too hard to follow him in the political environment that they're in. And he tells them to fix their eyes on Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. And let's run the race marked out for us as we keep our eyes on Jesus. So this is where Pence, I think, got tangled up and intertwined Christianity in America. In his speech, he said this, so let's run the race marked out for us. Remember, this is at the Republican National Convention, seeking to persuade people to vote for him and the president. So let us run the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on old glory and all she represents. Let's fix our eyes on this land of heroes and let their courage inspire Let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and freedom and never forget that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
So whereas the writer of Hebrews told Christians to fix their eyes on Jesus, Pence says, let's fix our eyes on old glory. Let's fix our eyes on this land of heroes. And let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and freedom. And so he, he takes this image from the New Testament, speaking precisely to followers of Jesus, and uses it in a political context to persuade people to vote for him and the president. And at the end here, he's actually taking another verse that was used in a very specific context, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that's actually from the Apostle Paul writing to believers in the, the pagan city of Corinth. And he said, when one turns to the Lord, that is when a person turns and trusts in faith to Jesus, the veil is removed. That is the veil that keeps them from seeing the glory of Jesus. And he says, now where the Spirit, I'm sorry, now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. So the freedom the apostle is talking about is the freedom that comes when we are liberated from our sin. And we can now see the glory of Jesus. But the vice president took this verse and used it to talk about the freedom that we'll have if we vote for them. Now, I'm, I'm not trying to pick on Republicans for, for any reason in particular. I just want to say we need to be careful of so intertwining Christianity and America or our favorite political party that we cannot envision one without the other. We need to unhitch God and country. Another word of caution Beware of thinking that Christianity in America rises or falls with whoever the president is or whoever, whichever political party has power. We need to be aware of, of thinking that Christianity rises or falls with any politician. No matter how, how much is pleaded that they save Christianity. Someone says, but aren't you worried about how secular our country is getting? Well, yeah, actually I am. I think that when our loyalties are elsewhere besides Jesus, we actually become less than human. We are not living in line with our design. So yes, I am worried about that, but probably not for the reason that most people are worried about. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her book, Confronting Christianity, which is an excellent book, she's, she's asking the 12 hardest questions of Christianity that people ask and, and seeks to address. But she says in the first chapter these words, perhaps the biggest shock to the secular system is China. In other words, people are worried about secularism taking hold, she says perhaps the biggest shock to the secular system is the example of China, a country that has tried hard to imagine and enforce no religion. Conservative estimates from 2010 put China's Christian population at over 68 million, representing 5% of its vast population. For context, in 1980, it was estimated that there were only 3 million Christians in China. 2010, it's estimated over 68 million. The latest I've seen for 2020 was 100 million believers in China. She goes on to say, but Christianity is spreading so fast, that it's spreading so fast in China, that experts believe China could have more Christians than the United States by 2030. That's just a few years from now. And that it could be a majority Christian country by 2050. Why am I using this example? Because in China, Christianity is thriving under intense persecution by a communist regime. Believers there are having to endure things that, that we can only imagine. And yet here in the land of freedom, 
Christianity is, is waning. In China, it's, it's growing so fast that it's going to have more Christians in just a few years than the United States. So no, Christianity does not rise and fall with whoever is in office. No, we don't need a politician to save Christianity. There's only one savior of the world, and his name is Jesus. Here's a third caution. Beware of believing that God could never be against the United States of America. None of us want to entertain the thought that God might not bless America. We sing it all the time. We, we want that to happen. But let's not kid ourselves. And, and to, to think about this, let, let's do just a bit of a thought experiment. If there was ever a nation that could claim to be God's chosen nation, it was Old Testament Israel. They were called to be God's chosen people for a particular time through whom God wanted to bless this world. And yet they became so depraved. Instead of being a light to the nations, they became an example of finding new ways to rebel against God. And so God raised up prophets like Jeremiah to confront them. And Jeremiah was known as the weeping prophet. He loved his nation. He wanted to see God bless this nation more than anything. And so his heart broke time after time as he tried to get people to listen and say, you cannot say there is peace when there's no peace. You can't trust in national symbols thinking that will keep you safe no matter how you want to live. And so one place, Jeremiah said this, the Lord of hosts who planted you has decreed disaster against you because of the evil that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. You say, well, what's the big deal with offering to Baal? A few chapters later, Jeremiah says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, The people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods. They have filled this place with the blood of innocence and have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not decree, nor did it come into my mind. The nation had become so depraved that they would take their children and sacrifice them to get the blessings of the gods so they could live the way they wanted to. This is the chosen people of God. And that's not to mention the way they treated the orphans and the widows and the immigrants and the poor. The prophets spoke against those as well. And so God comes against the nation of Israel, his chosen nation, and says, I am against you. My friends, let us beware of thinking that God could never be against our nation. John Piper said, one day, America and its presidents will be a footnote in history, but God's kingdom will never end. Those early believers running for their lives, just trying to make it another day, believed that the kingdom of Jesus is what will endure. That's what kept them going another day. Paul in another place said, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's that first point of application. I just simply have one more. The first one was unhitch God and country. 
because they don't necessarily go together. And we do that so that we can love our country better and even speak against her when we need to. But secondly, pledge your ultimate allegiance to Jesus, the King of Kings. We have a peculiar habit in our nation of thinking more highly of our politicians than we ought. And it doesn't matter what side of the aisle that you're on. We tend to, we wouldn't say deify them, but we will make artwork and artifacts that portray them as saints. And if you're a follower of a particular saint, they can do no wrong. My friends, this should not be the case. And you say, well, I don't do that. But let me ask you this question. Can you handle critique of your favorite politician or your favorite political party? I hope so. If we believe what the scriptures teach, all humans are fallen. All humans are created in the image of God. All humans have to deal with selfishness. And when people get power, they tend to use it for selfish purposes. We know, it's almost a proverb in our nation, the thing that an elected official wants most is another term. And many will do whatever it takes to get it. And so let me ask you this question. Can you list two or three strengths of the opposite political party that you voted for? Can you name two weaknesses or negatives of your own political party or your your favorite candidate? If you're a believer, this ought to be really easy to do. If, however, you're a partisan, you might find that really hard to do. And if you're a partisan, I have to ask you the question, does your loyalty cross the line into idolatry? Here's a criticism that we should be able to to make of, of any political party. I woke up this morning and checked. Our U.S. national debt is $27 trillion. That increased by $3 billion while we slept last night. And no party cares. We are stealing from our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren. And we're leaving them a burden that they ought not to be able to bear. We say we want to leave a better nation for our kids. But we're spending money like a drunken sailor on ourselves. And neither political party cares. Did you hear about it in the political debates? Did you read about it on their forums or on their websites? I looked. I couldn't find anyone caring about how we're enslaving future generations. This ought not to be the case. So my friends, I know I'm going a little bit long on this, but bear with me. Christianity in America is suffering from a terrible image problem. And most of that is self-inflicted. Christians are known for so many other things than allegiance to Jesus and for love. Jesus said to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. One of the fascinating things I find about what Jesus did with his disciples was he picked a group of 12 people to entrust his mission to. And did you know this? Two of them were on the far extremes of the political spectrum. On the one hand, Jesus invited Simon the Zealot to follow him. The Zealots wanted to overthrow Rome at any cost, including violence. And on the other end of the spectrum, 
Jesus invited a man named Matthew, the tax collector. Jews hated tax collectors because they were Jews who collected money for the occupying nation of Rome. And Jesus put them together on his team. He says, I want you to learn how to love one another. Peter would tell these group, these, uh, these um, followers of Jesus, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Scott Sauls in his book, Befriend, said, if I, f- if I feel more of a kindred solidarity with those who share my politics but not my faith than I feel with those who share my faith but not my politics, what does it say about me? My friends, if you are a Republican, you have more, let me say it, if you're a Republican Christian, a Christian Republican, maybe put it that way, you have more in common with a Christian Democrat than you do with your non-Christian neighbor who votes just like you do. You've both been forgiven by Jesus. You've both been given eternal life. You've both been adopted as his child for all eternity. You've been given the spirit and the gifts. He adores you. And if that's the case, then why do you despise someone who votes differently from you? This love that we have or ought to have for one another should spill over to the way that we love others. David Cassidy in his book, Indispensable, says, when we ask the question, are you leading in love? Or with your politics and pet causes that allow you to define the boundaries of who you will care for. If you're de-churched or never-churched, LBGTQ, agnostic, atheist, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, Mormon, or even Baptist neighbor, thinks the thing that most characterizes you is your opinion rather than your love, you're doing it wrong. My friends, we're not going to vote our way to a better identity as Christians. The only hope we have is to love and to love like Jesus taught us to. Jesus said, even these words, I say to you, love your enemies. Love one another as the church, love those outside the church, and even love those who hate you, who despise you, who would rather see you dead. That's the kind of charge that Jesus himself gave us. And Peter will later say in this letter, when he was reviled, he did not revile, I should say revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For, the, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. My friends, those of us who call Jesus our Lord ought to conduct ourselves differently because we confess that Jesus is Lord. That's where our ultimate allegiance should lie. So what if, what if we took a lesson from this early church? What if we began to, to view ourselves as part of the holy nation of Jesus, not defined by political boundaries, but called together to be on mission for him, that we may declare the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into this light. What if we actually had the courage to say, there's another king, and his name is Jesus, and he invites us all to bow the knee before him. He is so worthy of allegiance. And what if we who follow Jesus we're known most of all for our love. 
the world might look at us and say, you know, I don't agree with their politics and saying Jesus is Lord and I don't think that their rules on who you can sleep with or whatever are any good, but they love people. I want them to be my neighbor. I want to hire them for my employees. I want to be around Christians because there's no one who loves like they do. My friends, that was said about us. We could go a long way in healing our nation. Church, you are Jesus' nation, set apart and given the task of announcing that there is a new king who is the world's true Lord and Savior, and he alone is destined to reign over all things.